out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim, for that wise bit of wisdom. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always bring you the finest in indie pop from that golden decade and beyond. This week, um, my special guest, as I've been digging digging through those archives, um, was Rory McLeod, who I interviewed um, quite recently, this singer-songwriter. And um, this is the interview. I'm going to just put it right out there. Um, I'd sort of, after introducing myself, had been talking about seeing him in... In Glastonbury, at one of those magical festivals back in the late 80s and early 90s, um, in a marquee in the Greenfields, or on the Greenfields, and talking about that uh, album, um, which was titled Kicking the Sawdust, that came out in 1986, and had mentioned that he'd just been on the road for the last four or five decades. And this was Rory's response. Rory, take it away. Probably, yeah, it could be. It could be more, actually. I'm not, I, I, don't, I haven't counted, but yeah, probably about that. You yes. Right. So is it possible to get an idea of your own sort of the teenage years, you know, of how you started in, in the sort of the world that is? Sure. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, um, I, was, I probably was making songs before I even played an instrument, probably. Um, and I, my dad would given a harmonica, gave me a harmonica and... Um, I started trying to play it, and it was a very small instrument because you can put it in your pocket. So I'd, um, wherever I was, I might be waiting for a bus or walking, I'd, I'd just play to myself yes. and, and, and teach myself that way. Um, so I grew up listening to uh, second-hand records and dancing and, you know, rock and roll and that kind of thing, going, going to the market and, and experimenting, but thinking, oh, that looks interesting. There's a Moog synthesizer on that, or there's a, or the banjo on this, or a sitar, you know what I mean? So I'd look at the Steve and I'd think, oh, I'll give it a go, because it was second-hand, I wasn't paying a fortune. Yeah. And um, and then I might take it back and swap it for something else, or keep it, so, uh, and what, yeah. And what was, I mean, did you, at that stage, was that sort of the late 60s and early 70s that you, you started having your sort of kind of musical awakening? It was probably 70s, I think. Yes. Yeah. So was 70s. it, I just I wondered what, what sort of artist that you were sort of particularly kind of influenced by and and mm. sort of was like having one of those moments of thinking i could do that all oh, right well i suppose uh yeah I, well I, I i mean i had the beatles of course grew up with the beatles a lot of people did and dylan a bit and um uh, chuck berry um and i guess i was looking to rock and roll and I, one got into the blues from that really lead belly and um big bill Brunsy and stuff i, I ended up playing harmonica with the band and and realized some of the songs they play, you know, so were, you know, you didn't need so many chords. So I started making my own songs up, really, which are kind of, you could say, country songs are like that. And, you know, there's a lot of things that start with two chords and three chords. And so um, I was making up my own songs then, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, kind of um, rhythmically. Anyway, they were rhythmic things, I suppose, and melodic. I don't know what I was doing. I was experimenting a lot, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, was it, I mean, were you... You know, because your songs became sort of much more sort of, I suppose, a combination of sort of political and love songs as well. Did you, you know, was there anybody that in particular, you you know, whether it was an author you were reading or some sort of, I don't know, people love... Songwriters, you mean? Yeah, those kind well, of things. I, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I remember finding a, a record of John Prine and I, I liked him. He was, a, he was a story singer, I suppose, 
saying about people. I liked his songs. Um, kind of in a Dylan-esque way. But, yeah, country folk, American folk music, I suppose it would have been. Yes. Um, yeah, and then um, some of the radio ballads I heard from Record Library that are telling people stories. So those kind of things, I think, would have influenced me a bit. Yes, yeah. and, as this, and I was going to say, as the 70s progressed, in a very simplistic way, you had that kind of, obviously, the fallout of the 60s and then that glam period and prog period and then sort of punk. Mm. Was there any sort of musical kind of movements that you started to feel inspired or thinking, God, I could do that as well? Uh, well, I, I I don't know if it was a... I didn't know it was a movement at the time. I just like there were certain things that I like to hear, but I mean, I remember when the punk thing started, but I, I was a bit older then. I've been playing jug band and blues and acoustic kind of stuff already anyway, so it might have developed an, a physical attitude, but we had that already anyway. We'd be running around on each other's shoulders playing harmonicas and creating some kind of mayhem. It was very physical kind of way, in a way. Yeah. Um, trying to have a good time um, playing acoustic music, so playing harmonicas and guitars, quite loudly I suppose you could call it skiffle but I think skiffle had already been in gone we didn't we didn't know it was skiffle or think it was skiffle we just thought it was we, we were just playing um, a bit of acoustic rock and roll I suppose in a way you know um, and having fun with it things things changed from there of course we got banjos and so it was kind of uh, organic kind of folk rather than synthet- synthesizers although I did I had heard synthesizers on Captain Beefheart and um, you know like uh, various strange Lothar and the Hand people, whoever they were, but I never heard of them since, but there was a record I found. It's big, they were experimenting with, um, you know, with with synthesizers and early on, you know, um, all kinds of stuff. I, I mean, I like jazz as well. I love Billy Armstrong, Charlie Parker. Yes. Um, I liked, um, yeah, Rockabilly, Eddie Cochran. I was maybe a bit old-fashioned because I was still at school, so cross between reggae, ska and rock and roll. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I don't know really. Because I, I can I'm... remember my first ever gig was seeing Nine Below Zero, and I just remember there was a, a very good harmonica player in that particular band, and um, mm. being quite impressed. And obviously, then other kind of people came along. Obviously, we you know we had the Dylan, and then we had sort of Neil Young, and then obviously Mick mm. Jagger as well, who also used the instrument to a full effect, really. So, um, mm. yes, it was quite something. So then, I mean, as you progressed, as we got into the 80s, which was an interesting decade, and you brought out your album, Angry Love, did that mm. come together reason, you know, relatively quickly? I, I've been travelling, so I've been away for years, from even from England, so all the stuff that was going on anyway, I, I, I was just li- listening to music as I travelled, on the streets or um, in Mexico when I was with the circus. So that they were kind of demos that became an album, really. And I, rec- I didn't have, someone loaned me some money to record stuff and someone gave me some studio time. Some were recording at a youth, recorded at a youth club in Unit 1 in Uxbridge. Uh, people used to run and I'd go in there and, and jam and play with people and, and there was some recording time. So it, it was a, a whole mishmash, really. I mean, it took... I had it. I was selling things on a tape for a while. You know, it was a cassette before it became Angry Love and Kicking the Sawdust. Yeah. Um, I was experimenting with recording and singing the uh, a cappella. You know, trying to sing in bass parts and then overdubbing and putting vocal parts because I loved vocal music. Um, and so experimenting a bit with all that kind of thing. And so the studio, I quite enjoyed being. You know, I had the songs. I just I was trying to find. I was experimenting with. Um, you know, the recording of them. Angry Love, some of Angry Love was overdubbed, some were, were done live, you know, So, so and, and 
so a whole mixture of, of different um, ways of recording, you know, as well. I was experimenting with tape recorders when I was quite young, just bouncing tracks from one to another, you know, before multi-tracking was available for um, everyone. <laughs> so <laughs> I was so I was experimenting with, uh, joint, you know, creating uh, sounds that were, you know, more than I could do on my own live, you know. So I was with cowbells and um, and slide and, and and various other little, you know, vocal effects. Yes. Because um, mm. I kind of having been quite obsessed with David Bowie as a sort of a young person, then sort of grew yeah. up, sort of always listened to him and followed his yeah. career. I suppose you know he was my first love and first single and all that kind of mis- mm. uh, malarkey. But I just remember his kind of sixties period of sort of experimenting quite a lot and you know doing the stuff with mm. Lindsay Kemp. Did, did did life in the circus give you a very good background mm. into the world of being a performer and how to? get yourself across there because it often it often seems from people I've spoke to who've you know it took a few years before they managed to sort of mm. break into the music world that those kind of early formative years of sort of doing other things which are slightly cre- connected to the creative arts was kind of it helped set them up for the rest of their life really mm, I think that and busking really yeah busking is um setting up and just singing I mean I always sang my own songs but to get to to, to get grab attention i suppose <laughs> uh as to be quite use a rhythm i noticed rhythm grabbed people you know voice um but um uh and um uh, the circus in a way i developed me you know, it was a kind of pantomime i suppose i was on mime so it helped in a kind of way of, of uh perhaps um you know clowning and stuff and and um uh, mime in that way on stage perhaps you know make, having fun with kids and you know being uh uh animated you know it's that kind of way um i don't know how much it affected the music but the live it probably helped affect physically affect you know the voice on the street you have to be quite loud you know you end up shouting actually so it's not <laughs> always good for the voice um but i know what you mean but i, I was a big lou reed fan as well i loved um all that you know walk of the world so I, well i had a single of that and um very simple you know too cool thing but with a lovely bass muscular bass and um had an element of jazz in that didn't it and um uh, story. A story. Uh, it was good. Yeah. It was a big story, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and Bowie, of course, because my brother worked in a record shop, so he'd bring stuff home on a Saturday night and like it would be Bowie, Hunky Dory, the early Ziggy. Uh, and they were stories too, weren't they, really? And, and a chameleon kind of character. And so guys I went to school with had red hair and, you know, <laughs> looked like Bowie and, um, you know, in that kind of way. When yeah. Lived, lived that that kind of thing, you know, with all the other stuff that was going on, of course, at the time. But um, I think, yeah, definitely captured imagination of kids I was at school with as well. Yes. And as we trundled through the dear old 80s, which was an interesting decade, there was kind of, because a lot of people I spoke to um, during especially the early part, I suppose their musical kind of career started because of being unemployed and sort of claiming job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance. So that sort of gave a lot of people a chance to almost have a have a, a year at least of, of being able to sort of focus their art. And at the same time, there was, you know, there wasn't for a lot of people that much an opportunity out there. So it was like, well, I'm just going to have to be in a band and then mm. just kill this next couple of years and see what happens. And obviously no one knows. Mm. But at the same time, there was kind of like there'd been the Falklands and the miners and huge amounts mm. of stuff going on in in south africa so were were all those were those things also tapping into your life as well yes i think so i mean i lived in germany as so i was living in hamburg we, we got so i was playing with the jug band we'd been busking in london and portobello road and we'd been busking um 
at Camden Lock Market, Camden Lock, and I bust on my own. And um, cause, uh, and so, and we got invo- we ended up in, living in Germany and playing there. So we were busking and playing there. So instead of being on the dole, we, we were there earning, trying to a small wage, but doing what we were doing, you know. And so learning the craft, I suppose, and arranging and recording. And I was I was still I was making songs that the band never wouldn't have really done because I. I'd got restless with all the blue stuff and I wanted to, I was looking for my own voice, I suppose. I didn't want to sing in an American accent either, you know, or, or harmonies in an American accent. So and I was writing songs about my mum or, or other, you know, people working and other things. So that did affect things. I was involved, it was Rock Gagan Rex over there, which is Rock Against the Riot. I guess it was like Rock Against Racism. Yes. And Wolf Beerman was leaving East Germany and, uh, and over, he's a political songwriter, uh, singer, you know, German guy. And so all that, yes, I was, I think I always was political anyway, even at school, you know, in that kind of way, doing painting and, and starting painting and do, during the minor strike, the first minor strike, um, and big, big paintings with poems going with them and stuff. So there's always words and images in there, you know, yes. somehow. And uh, I know learning. sort of, and sort of being obsessed with John Peel, and he was doing, you know, he was playing obviously a lot of Billy Bragg, and there was also people like Ted Hawkins, who well, I know was American, but we all sort of loved Ted Hawkins, if you can remember him coming mm. suddenly appearing at the age of sixty and playing music, and I and mm. I sort of wondered as as you know listening to sort of people like Billy Bragg, did that sort of give you a bit more? I wouldn't say confidence, but thinking well, actually I can sing in the uh, my own voice and not sort of imitate, as you said, the, the sort of anybody mm. else. I just wondered if that well, was kind of a big effect. I would. I was already doing that, funny enough, because um, I I hadn't heard about Billy Bragg until I was in Texas, I think, and someone mentioned English people were, were traveling on there, and they said asked if I'd heard of him. I hadn't heard of him. Um, I'd heard of Ian Jury though, and I'd heard of. Um, I don't think I'd heard of Anthony Newley, of course. <laughs> yeah. um, so I hadn't heard of Billy at that time. So, I, I, in fact, when I came, it was strange because I've been away for like quite a long time, you know, Mexico with a circus. I was singing songs I'd made up to people who didn't quite understand English, you know, but they were dancing. Um, then I came to, up to Texas and ended up um, winning a harmonica competition there and, and singing my songs and stories. And suddenly people were picking up on the lyrics and I th- I'd, and of the songs. And um, I hadn't realised, you know, because I've been away so long, I, I wasn't listening to, I didn't know what was going on, you know, until I went, I stayed at someone's house and I heard records of the jam or some of the punk stuff, you know, but, and, um, but I hadn't heard because I've been away traveling, you know, the punk stuff um, uh, and other you know, uh, the Cure or whoever. It was just because someone had a record collection. I was staying there for a while and put them on and listened to them. Um, and I hadn't heard of them, you know. So I was doing it. So I came back and people said, oh, you sound like Chaz and Dave. I didn't know who they were. Uh, <laughs> Cockney, you know, and, uh, or or something like that, you know. Yes. So I think I'd, I'd already been doing that anyway because I'd realised, uh, well, it just it was more comfortable to sing me. You know, I couldn't, wasn't pretending to be anyone else. So, so um uh, and I started playing on, on the poetry scene. Actually, it was performance poetry called "Apples and Snakes." It was cool. So there was there was all the ranting poets like Attila the Stockbroker, but there was also um, Seething Wells and mm. um, oh, well, Little Brother and Heathcote Williams, who wrote "Whale Nation." Um, so lyrical, uh, 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 Jackie Kay, a black Scottish Glaswegian um, a poet, and all you know. So I was on, on with poets as well, doing cabaret, you know. And then I found. Alternative cabaret scene, so I ended up. 
I was supporting um, uh, Alexi Sale. I didn't know who he was at the Albany Empire. You know, I didn't know who he was at the time. Yes. I'd been away. And I thought it was hilarious because I, I, I love laughing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, you know, so I was doing a, a bit of the cabaret and all these people are on telly now, some, some of them anyway, and working with comedians or, or cabaret artists, you know, singing my songs. Um, so it came up that way, really. Yeah. Kind of, uh, which kind of a, there were bands like Akimbo and I think Billy was starting uh, was starting, starting around then uh, well I first heard of him then anyway doing an Apples and Snakes kid to make, I wasn't making a name for himself after I got back but um, Linton Quasi Johnson for example or um, and then you know was, was doing something with the reggae so those kind of things and gladiators I, I like reggae a lot you know because I grew up my friends at school you know Yes, West Indian friends at school and dancing, and so it was. I was, I was kind of um, always liked to scar and re- and rock and roll. You know, I loved it all really. You know, it was all just different. Had different accents, all this music, on the on beat or the off beat, and um, yeah, I don't know. And the, and the gospel, the harmonies I love. The gladiators have lovely harmonies, and the Ethiopians, and I love gospel. You know, I always like gospel music and that, that harmony singing. You know, that quite soulful that I liked. So that was all coming together. Yes. In those kind of in the in Bob Marley, I suppose, and because he had the um, uh, you know backup backing singers with him. Well, I, so, yes, yeah, absolutely. So all those, I don't. It's, it's it's hard to know where things start and what cross fertilised and what started what really. But I'm just yeah, just trying to get just trying to find gigs, you know. But obviously, learning on the streets and, and learning in Germany with this jug band and making songs and that they didn't want to do. But I was I I, so I, I ended up. Um, playing with the guitarist for a while he never showed up to gigs so i thought well, i've got these songs i'll just i might as well play my own songs you know so i started that's how i started playing on my own really and started doing my own the, the songs i'd written um because a friend had let me down <laughs> to these gigs so i was playing then that, that was in the late 70s right so all that was going on way before you know then after that's and then i went to for that's germany and then i went off mexico after that for three or four years and i've been texas and playing harmonica with um with the reggae band and and playing all these uh these kind of bars where they like songwriting you know the butch hancock jimmy dale gilmore from from lubbock where buddy holly came from lubbock texas and mexican tex mexicans and so um yeah they were into the songwriting and the lyrics then which is and i I'd had already heard john Prine and you know growing up because i liked banjo and folk you know you and mccall and the folk stuff so so all kind of it all mishmashed somehow. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. All, you know, all those kind of things going on. Yeah. And then by the mid 80s, this is when you were sort of recording, probably kicking against the sawdust. This is kind of, it came out about 86. And that was one of those albums that a lot of people owned. And, and you mentioned all those kind of um, rather angsty and ranty poets like Stephen mm. Wells and Attila. And then there was other bands mm. who came along like The Blythe Power and Chumbawamba and, and people had been into Crass. So you, mm. you sort of, picked up that or you became part of that kind of scene if if, if it wasn't directly slightly indirectly because your your records mm. appeared in in people's record collection that seemed to have all those other other bands so can you remember much about recording kicking but, against the sawdust well i recorded some of it in texas some have recorded on um at home because i borrowed uh, someone's recording gear i think i ended up on cooking vinyl which is what the mecons and some of those bands are on you know that you mentioned um, but I, yeah, so I, I borrowed a, a friend, Ian Blake. He, he loaned me his. So I was experimenting with sound collages at the time, and and just trying to and just doing because by then there were Porter Studios available, and this was what I was borrowing. Instead of having to use two tape recorders and 
bounce from one to another. I suddenly realised I can, you know, you can multitrack with, with a cassette. So I was doing some demos, and some of those demos are on cooking the sawdust, which is recorded on a on a portal studio, and some are on on a Walkman. And then others were in the studio. There was one shoot studio in Shepherd's Bush. There was a studio. There was uh, some of the recordings done in, were done uh, in. Angry Love and Kicking the Sawdust, all those songs were recorded around the same time, similar time. So I did recorded some in Austin, in Texas, when I was there. Someone uh, um, uh, loaned me some money, or just wanted to give us some studio time. A kind friend who had some money, so I was in there recording, and they, they, I, I thanked them on the albums. But so all those things were done in different places, and I was learning to arrange. And some were failures, but you know, because of this, you know, some some effects you you try. I'm, I was trying to overdo things and overproduce, perhaps putting bass harmonicas on. I just wanted to try see what the different sounds and experiment. You know, yeah. Um, um, I didn't know. I still don't know what Blythe Power do actually, but um, they might have been on a similar label or like Jumba Wumba as well. Now I know, but back then I don't think I knew. All I remember is that the, 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 there was a cooking vinyl album that we were on. Footsteps the and Hot. Yes. That, oh, that's one of mine. Yeah, that's a, that was another later one. So all these were that was recorded in London. That the Footsteps and Hot was recorded in, in Brixton actually. Um, and there's an outtake of that, which uh, is on the last album, actually, the one I just released this year, because I found good Paul, who plays banjo, um, had a stroke, can't play banjo anymore. I thought I must honour him and, and put a track that he played on. So it's a song that never got saw the light of day until this year, that was recording at the same time as, uh, when I, that I did Footsteps and Heartbeats. Um, but that was, again, in the studio in Brixton there and experimenting singing with myself you know vocals the first thing i recorded was was all vocals it's all a cappella. i called it mouth music a single yes. called um i'm a rebel trying to govern myself and that was all so i was experimenting with all my with you know voice pops and um uh bass voice and singing with myself basically and, and seeing i could if i could create uh, a rhythmic uh track and melody with it just using the voice no instruments you know so that was the first thing and I've done a bit since then. Uh, Brave Faces has got, I'm doing things with just all voices. I'm trying to, I'm imitating instruments or or just finding a way of arranging things, you know, using the voice. So always my, my um, what's the word, my dream is always to have an a cappella group, actually, with bass singers. And uh, now it's an orchestra, but you know, back then it was, I felt like the idea that you could just, Stand in a corner or in a, or in a kitchen or in a, anywhere with no instruments and sit, stand up there and, all, and you're singing together and creating this lovely sound yes. with bass and moving bass parts, counter melodies and, and rhythms and those kind of things, you know, um, which I was trying to do on my own. But I'd love to have done it as a band, you know, but I couldn't, yes. of course, because you've got to get a band together who can sing like that. And, uh, and normally it's brothers and sisters that end up in these vocal groups, isn't it, or a church or something. So, yes. <laughs> so, it was uh, a, so um, yeah, that's right. Experiment. God, I can't. Remember. Every album's an experiment, really. Some failures and some worked all right, you know. And and as as you go on, you realise the more you, the less you put in. You know, space is important. The less you put in, the better. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess sometimes when you listen to a lot of those really classic songs that have now become like, well, will be with us for all time. Really, I suppose mm. you know, like early Neil Young and stuff like that. You realise, God, actually, even most people go, well, it is quite simple. But then you think there is some, there is kind of genius in there as well, isn't there? That those kind definitely, of, yeah. You only have well, to it's hear capturing, 
Sorry, go on. I was going to say, you only have to hear the first chord. You go, oh, yes, that's that classic Neil Young song, yeah. or Lou Reed, or even, you know, yeah. Changes by David Bowie. It's like, okay, yes, got yeah. it. You know, so, yeah, simplicity is probably it. And also, just to say, because obviously going from to, you on Cooking Vinyl, which at the time, especially in the 80s, was one of those kind of labels that, I mean, I know they're still going, but they had people like Michelle Schott on, and mm, you know, right, there was sure, a lot yeah. of people. You know, it was just kind of one of those labels that was kind of definitely on the way up at that stage. Did that feel mm. kind of an exciting thing to sort of be part of something which had a bit more support behind you? Um, I never really, at the time, you don't really know what appreciate it. Probably, you know, I mean, I did tour with Michelle and was a I was a band for a while playing harmonica with her. And we knew similar people in Texas that I knew, you know, in the same way back. When I was first in Austin, I, I met people that, so we had friends in common. I didn't probably really appreciate that, but there, and we were stable mates, of course. So we'd end up doing gigs together as well. Some of us like the Mr. Band or, or the Poison Girls, actually. I did quite a few things with during the minor strike. Um, I guess it's funny that thing like you're saying, though, about because how tuned, because I'm, I'm more of a live, you know, I, Live is where it's at for me, and and of course records. What happens with music in a wonderful way, like create like good vibrations or or Bowie's you know stuff. It becomes the songs also like we had become fossilized somehow in a. So if you try and do it differently, people aren't so happy because they they grew up listening to that iconic guitar solo in the middle of whatever it might be you know or the beginning of this because they become icon, iconic you know. And we had an example really. I was. A few of us, like I think Billy was asked, and a few other folkies were asked if we to recall Dylan's freewheeling album, you know, to recall the songs on it. Yeah. I, I I didn't get the song I chose. I would have chosen, um, I don't know, it might be Girl from the North Country or something. Anyway, they gave me Honey, Allow Me One More Chance. And I, so when I was basically, I rewrote the song, changed the melody because he Dylan would I, Dylan got it from a guy called Henry Thomas, an old Texan blues guy. So I thought I'd. Nod, give a nod to Henry, Henry Thomas, um, and use a bit of his melody, but I completely anglicised it. And there's only two original lines of Dylan's song in it, and it's relent- it goes on and on, actually. It's a bit too long, <laughs> relentless. But I was having fun with it, because I thought, if Dylan was asked to recall his freewheeling album again, he wouldn't have done it the same either, you know, wouldn't have done it. So instead of trying to copy him, I decided, I thought I should try and just make something new, you know, go ahead with it and, and make something different, because I'm, you know, that's what he would have done, but also, it made me realise how music can get fossilised. Or not, it sounds like it's dead, but I don't mean that. Um, it can suddenly be defined, and you can never by some by a recording. You captured that moment, which is a wonderful moment, and you captured it and captured it like it could be Louis Armstrong's West End Blue with a fantastic trumpet solo. You know that's iconic that solo. It's fantastic, you know, but and it's all there for all time, which is wonderful. But then. If you're going to do redo that song or redo one of Dylan's or redo Bowie's, it's doing it different each time. You know, that's where the creative thing. So because, you know, you're in a studio and you're painting a picture that that's, and it's there for forever, like a tattoo, you know. In a yes. Way. But it's interesting. But, you, yeah, sorry. So I, I was just trying to explain how that can happen. Like, there's people who listen to old, old records of people. They might be a little mistake. They'll play the mistake, you know. They'll play them because they're copying the record. And I, I don't think you have to do that or copy it. You know what I mean? There's no right or wrong way. So people ask me if they can do one of my songs and say, make it your own, you know, breathe new life in it and, do, you know, make your own verse. You know, just make it your own, sing it your own way, you know. So I think that's that can happen with records, you know, and, and um, when we record. We kept, I mean, it's always the, the, the challenge is trying to capture that moment, really, and excitement and life and vitality 
which is uh, which is why obviously live live albums work really well and you're trying to record it live so you've got some you're not trying to do every syllable again you're just trying to breathe with it and um here is here maybe here a squeaking chair or a <laughs> or a you know something might might you know someone might sneeze but it was a great take let's keep it you know yeah. it's one of those do you know what i mean so you're trying to capture that moment because it's magic and that and that it's part of that when you're recording as well as well as all the other experimenting you know using bass harmonica or tubers or whatever you know yeah well absolutely it was interesting because i know i spoke to a few drummers recently who went through a kind of hell really because of the click track they were saying that you know the things mm, yeah. got really tense in the studio when mm. especially with producers suddenly you had the band and then a producer who was giving you mm. a lot of grief <clears throat> about playing to this click track and it had to right. have this and if, if you didn't get it you know it's a bit like do you want the do you want the real drummer who's been in the band for years or should we just have yeah. a drum machine instead and yeah. just just yeah. make sure that it's perfect and they 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 went through kind of an existential hell because of that kind oh, of god i bet you know because it yeah. just kind of reduced their confidence to zero it's like actually i can't do this i thought i could well that's but, right you know so you it, lose the life you lose the life of the music because there's a pulse you know things do speed up and slow down a bit and then it's in a lovely way and I, I you know to magnify a moment you might slow everything down just suddenly to magnify that verse or the way and then speed up again whereas we're not machines you know so i'm luckily i never had a, i just produced them all my own recordings myself really and um and, and had a very good engineer with me who who might you know have, have a good ear and say oh, i think that you know we, that was a, that was slightly out of tune or something you know what i mean or that that kind of thing but um uh, yes, metronomes and drummers. God, poor yes, buggers. They are poor. No, because, um, yeah, it's I use my tap shoes as a me- my my tap shoes were uh, sometimes of the me- not metronome, but you know I used that with the guitar together as the as the as the main you know as a rhythmic track and just and I'm singing at the same time and then I start embellishing you know start colouring in or adding things rather that's that's where it comes from is the the pulse you know the dancing pulse of the feet and the between the hands and the feet and the guitar the guitar like a drum with strings on really so yes. and, and I've got my tap shoes which are mic'd up and so once you've got that and it's all perfect then you've you've got a good foundation to build around you know put yes. the harmonies on well right. absolutely because it was interesting what you said a bit earlier about sort of like covering other people's material because I could never understand why anybody would cover something and make it sound like the original because you might also because as a fan you think well I'll just listen to mm. the original right? whereas a, a, someone reinterpreting it is kind of interesting I do remember when Joni Mitchell a few mm. years ago and it's probably quite a few more than I imagine now did her early stuff again but mm. really made it so different and it was so i mean the you know the lyrics hadn't changed but the style of it was so melancholic and sort of mm. and it was she'd written these as a young person but then she mm. sung them with this kind of very sagely kind of older voice i suppose with a bit of yeah. an orchestral quality uh, you know instrumentation behind her and yeah. and they suddenly felt really I mean, you know, they always reflective her lyrics, but my God, mm. they felt really depressing at the end, which I kind of like depressing mm. lyrics, I have to say. But, it, you yeah. know, but all her material is about searching, love, loss, you know, mm. what it's all about. So actually mm. going back and recording some of your material again can, mm. can you know, especially if you redo it, can, can yeah. be really powerful. Oh, no, I think so, because, I mean, this takes, I've done, well, because I have a the familiar strangers of friends. Diego plays harp string harp, he's a Colombian harp, which is very particular, it's very rhythmic, 
um, and lyrical at the same time. So you've got lots of colour and texture in there. And Bob plays clarinet and sax and Richard's double bass. So uh, there's a couple of things I recorded, re-recorded that I'd done, you know, in the past. I had much more life to them and, and were a better tempo as well, I have to say. <laughs> uh, so, you know, breathing more life into them. Again, yes, it yes. does happen. And and maybe with maturity sometimes, because I think a lot of the songwriting, some people go to the studio too early, you know, and I've done that. I had done that years ago because I had the chance to um, hardly ha- not ever singing, you know, inhabiting the song is important. So if you rec- before you record it, you need to go and sing it live because that's part of the pr- writing process or com- composing process in front of an audience, you know, and, and um, inhabiting it, dancing with it and singing it and finding out the phrasing. And then maybe it's time to, you know, then it's maybe time to record it rather than going in there when you're still writing it you know i know people do write in the studio but i I find i find the other way around the other better bit um maybe needs must you know sometimes i guess the way it goes yeah but it's interesting because i do love my rock and pop documentaries and i sort of i don't mind which the what bands they are i just watched all more i remember you know black sabbath had you know in the early years had been Mm. playing live for years and years and obviously had sort of got the song sorted. So when they went in and recorded that first album, you know, they mm. could just do it in an afternoon because they'd been playing it. Yeah. But they'd obviously changed it and knew how what worked yeah. best by watching the audience. And and another band yeah. who, I, yeah. who I really didn't like at all, but Twisted mm. Sister spent years not getting a record label or a record yeah. deal, you know, because no one wanted to touch them. But they really mm. learned how to do their craft, you know. So again... Yes. They'd been sort of years of being abused and bottled and sort of how to deal with crowds and what, what songs worked well. So, again, mm. they thought, actually, I, we've no, you know, and it's a bit like the Beatles going to Hamburg, you know, and doing mm. that, that, that. That was kind of their every night. Yeah, going there, exactly. learning how to play, then coming back and going, right, we've done That's our right. apprenticeship and we know yes. how to do it now a bit more. Yeah. Well, yes. And so it worked. But I don't think, you know, they would have probably had it so well if they they tried to go straight into the studio and were manufactured straight away i've been mean, learning to play yeah. in front of a audience probably twice a night or twice a day it's probably <clears throat> it's going to give people that edge it's a bit like sports yeah. as well isn't it so i think you're right i mean i think some styles you make you know they suddenly discovered can be nipped in the bud you know and it's a bit too early they haven't broken the board yet and and done that kind of apprenticeship you're right i think yes. yeah well i always i mean i Sorry, go I was going to say, I suppose it's the same with Bowie. I mean, he spent his 60s making some rather yeah. dodgy material. But then he obviously yeah. learned what worked, what didn't, you know, and then kept playing exactly. and then drawing on all those things for the next three or four decades. So, yes. Yeah, exactly. They were, they were, they, they might, yes, exactly. I've got stuff like that. I wouldn't, I'd, hate, I'd be embarrassed to hear. I don't know what it is, what it's like. I don't want to hear it. But, you know, experimenting with tape recorders, you know, reel to reels that I've fixed by accident and started messing around with, you know, and trying different things. But, um, I think that it's interesting what you said about, um, well, not mis- mis- sad, depressing songs, but I mean, there's a depth to there's a depth to, to um, some things. And there's a darkness as well. That when when I was younger, I mean, I I I, I might have made songs that were quite sad, you know, and I but I felt self indulgent to sing them, so I didn't because I thought, oh, I'm being so. But now, I, I, well, actually, when I have sung them, people come and say, oh, I, they wouldn't really need connected with it, you know. And um, and I think what it is is I've realised and and I do more now. I mean I've had a lot of sad songs and I didn't sing. I felt self indulgent. I just do the happy ones or the dance one. But I realised actually what I've always wanted to do. Was, I, I might have sad songs, but I didn't want to depress anyone, make people miserable. I wanted to take the sadness out of them when they're listening, which is what 
good you know hopefully soul music and you know lovely music might do in a healing way you know so and i never i was too young and immature to to realize that now i i love singing those songs and i love hearing i love my voice to do slow songs and you know and i love the way i'm still exploring my voice more using the microphone for example microphone technique rather than shouting like i used to on the busking on the street you know uh there's a color in voice you know like billy holiday had and louis had louis armstrong and and wonderful singers like Roy Orbison, whoever you know the, the lovely singers that we have you know well they wouldn't never have been a bing crosby or crooners without a microphone for example <laughs> you know, we had ethel merman who could pin you to the back wall acoustically you know but uh but, the microphone changed singing a lot as well, you know, and it, so that microphone technique and enjoying that is it, quite an, um, an experience really. So, you know, we, we learned these things at the time I didn't, because we've played acoustic so much and, you know, and uh, in loud places or on the streets and without a microphone. So it's only, you know, later on, I went, Oh, there's lovely colors in our voice that, you know, bring those out, you know, and that's the maturity, I suppose, or the depth, but and ripeness or something about all that. But, and I really, realize that we need those songs you know need those as well you know yes. <laughs> the torch songs like marlena Dittrich would have sung or whoever you know lovely julie garland or you know or whatever you know well yes well well being crosby i suppose was one of the early stars of um yes the, the and al of... jolson yeah i mean al jolson was a huge he was like elvis yeah i mean he was a huge star you know hit and he 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 was a jewish you know his dad was a uh, cantor you know a, a rabbi and he blacked up you know <laughs> very strange but I mean his friends he was one of the few people in Hollywood or that invited black folks around to his for dinner you know and and, and he, refused, he challenged people in bars you've got to serve these, these are friends of mine you, you know he, he was quite challenging in that way in a good way you know that, that apartheid and segregation that existed in, in America he wouldn't put up with it and he had but he had the personality and the power to do that because he was famous <laughs> you yes. know to, well, so you're going to sit here, you're going to serve these guys, you know, these are friends of mine, they're songwriters, black guys, you know. So there's stories like that, you know, uh, as well, you know, the way yes. that... And how uh, does, um, well, just coming up, you know, because talkative music, the label, this, mm, is, um, yeah. this is yours, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, And right, yeah. And so did you sort of start that because you just wanted to have more kind of, I suppose, ownership or more control over your, your sort of music? Or well, what happened, I always... So I basically recorded all the all the stuff. I always recorded and paid for the studios, recorded everything, and I gave basically licensed them to Cooking Vinyl. These, you know, this what They didn't pay, and so they did quite well out of me. And I, I don't have any sour grapes. It's great because I didn't. I was on the road with them. We went to stores, CDs anyway, or or vinyl at the time. Um, so I always produced and recorded myself, and I, you know, without anyone looking over me. When I when I, I save some money out and I pay everyone properly and sessions, and if I did use anyone. Um, and do all that stuff but talkative that's that's been since for, for years you know before I even with cooking vinyl the first cassette i saw was called talkative songs actually because of the lyrics and you know they were, i was you know they were trying to say something there was a i think i even used a, a, a cartoon an honore domie was a french cartoonist from 1700s and i used um i quite liked one of his uh, cartoons that i used and they were trying to stop this guy in court speaking and by by gagging him, and and the judge says let 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 him explain himself, but he can't, of course. So they, I kind of like that card. So talkative songs was something that sprang up even when I was in in the late seventies, you know, and and, uh, and in the early eighties before cooking vinyl, I'd, I'd 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 use that even for my own gigs, actually, even you know. Yes. So, so um yeah. 
Yes, and then through, yeah. you, know, you, you sort of were bringing out albums quite regular, and then sort of 2010, you brought out quite, it was quite a, a quite a heavy album, Swings and Roundabouts, wasn't it? Mm. So, mm. Yes, yes. I was mean, uh, just going to say, I just, you know, it was, it was kind of quite a different vibe at times on that one. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I was trying to do stuff live more than overdubs that I'd done in the past, you know, so I wanted to bring other musicians in. And I suppose the songs, maybe I was going through a breakup, you know, I, I was wanting to, um, what's the word? Well, yes, I just had different things I wanted to sing about, I suppose. So, yeah, I suppose maybe that's why. And I, I enjoyed recording that quite a lot, actually, you know, pedal steel, all the colours, you know, and using the harp and the clarinet. So, yeah, there were songs that I kind of thought they were demanding, I always joked and said, you'll find me in the difficult listening section of a record shop, you know, yes. rather than the easy listening, you know, um, because I realised they are quite demanding, you know, to some of them, you know, there's a lot of words or whatever. But um, I think emotionally that was had a lot lot more going for it than to some of the previous ones, perhaps, in a kind of way that I, stuff I'd avoided singing about. But there was some old stuff on there as well yes. that I let go of as well. So, you know, maybe, maybe I, is that, I don't know what you think, I mean, it yeah, just, yeah. it just, it was, you know, just like a lot of those, yeah, songs had quite a, like, oh, that's, that's kind of um, quite a number, you know. I mean, I was somebody yeah. who grew up listening to, you know, I must admit, I did love the Carpenters just because lyrically they were just so like, wow, they're quite amazing. Mm. And then obviously, you know, listen to Joy Division, The Smiths. I mean, I suppose I've mm. always liked romantic melancholia, I suppose. Yeah. And then you know, I sort of listened to some of that album and, it you know, it's a sort of a pretty you know it's a pretty deep album with some quite sort mm. of serious messages in there and some sort of mm. quite deep emotion so it was it was quite mm. a yeah I suppose one that has those moments a bit like David Bowie's Black Star album you know obviously it's a bit strange because you know he he recorded when he was dying yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we didn't know that but he obviously did no. so when again you were talking yeah. about the voice and I was thinking god yeah you know Bowie's voice on that at times is quite extraordinary. So um, mm. knowing he knew what was happening and where he was mm. going next. So so again, yes, the voice is you. You want to hear that voice. You want to hear that kind yeah. of vulnerability, don't you? In, in a singer, yeah. I think that's when you know you hear great singers. Is is you know when you hear that kind of like yeah gravitas, isn't it? <laughs> it is, isn't it? Well, those talks. I mean, that applause is about actually is about Judy Garland and and Edith Piaf. I mean, I have within mind, you know. Um, applause, you know, um, you can't take it home to bed with you, you know, it's addictive. But in, in the end, you know, they were loved by so many people but had deeply tragic, lonely lives, you know, in, in the end. So I think it's also to do with being honest. I was trying to be emotionally true, honest, naked, and just to sing, just to, what's the word, uh, just to, uh, yeah, be emotionally true and, and honest and try and be uh to sing about things that I think need to be sung about because in sometimes you find it's trying to articulate things. And, and I found that people do connect to that, um, you know, because you've articulated something for someone I've had orphans, you know, I've, the, when you were born, that, that there's two songs that that's about an unmarried mother. And there, there's a, I wrote, I made two songs uh, with a different, same story, same characters, but sing, sung from a different point of view, but with a different ending as well. So, that the other song is for, and about an orphan growing up one the same story but growing up 
um, wondering who its mum was and what she might have gone through to leave her outside on the, in, you know, in the frosty weather where the foxes might have got her and whether she inherited her nose or what she looked like. And and where, and where the, the one on the album is, is from the mother's point of view and it's a different ending. It's a happier ending, actually. But um, And I've had people coming up asking, <laughs> wanting to hear the other one or, or they were orphaned, you know, they, they were wondering who their mum was and quite moved, you know. So I think they're important. I don't know. I don't want to, you know, you've got to just... Yeah, it's just looking for that emotional truth and and having to let put, hang all your washing up, really. I suppose you know whatever you call it, dirty washing <laughs> up, or um, or and trying to find universality in it as well. You know, not so it's not just about me, but but also also trying to sing about trying to own up to mistakes and I don't know, uh, trying to find truth really. You know, emotional truth and and in that kind of way. Yes. And, and, and yeah, so and and also trying to make it as musical as possible, you know, as rich and musical, because in the end it's still music. And um, so trying to make it, so it's, I've got some very sad songs that have got happy melodies, for example, you know, and that's that's how we liberate ourselves from that melancholia in a way, you know, because there's a the melody there and you can still dance somehow, and and it, and it's a kind of a juxtaposition. So I've. You know, you, there might be a song about divorce, you know, and, and it's, but it's got a kind of mel- goes into a minor key, but then it goes into a major again. It's got this happy, it's got a sour and sweet, you know, kind of thing going on it. Um, so it's, and, and some, I guess even Jewish doiners, they start really slow dirges and the heads low, heads low, and then it starts gaining momentum and speeding up and it becomes a, 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 um, and then start dancing and the hands go up in the air and you're liberated from that melancholia or depression or, you know what I mean? It's a physical thing as well as emotional because they go together, I think. Um, So if, um, if, if a, if a woman was an unmarried mother was telling you about what happened what she did and when she was sent to this uh, convent, if she told you that she'd be, it's a physical thing because she gave birth, you know, so that memory is emotional. So she could be probably be in tears, you know, as well. So it's, it's, it, that's what happens. You know, I think that's what some, I mean, I, I sing a lot of words, you know, and I, it's called, it's called talkative songs, but I realize sometimes words get in the way of emotions and sometimes the most simple cry or song with hardly any words or just a few words, which sometimes they might be my favorite one because that's the space to, express um a longing or yearning or 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 cry like that you know to have that it's a physical cathartic thing you know (laughs) so there's different kind of way songs you know some are rhythmic and dance and tell a story and others are for that for that thing as well and the cathartic thing of um you know letting fly and trying to fly somewhere in the song somehow i don't know yeah or to someone or (laughs) and that's where the soul kind of soul flies somehow that's where i suppose that um imperfect world's a bit like that or uh, whatever songs have a bit like that to it well absolutely and then you have quite a break and then this year you brought out gusto which is i mean what was what was kind of happening for you in the decade well i had other in that I was I've been writing trying to write a novel actually for the last five or six years when I get time, um, and songs. This songs are well. We did the I think the Familiar Strangers. We did an album there, so it's a, we had an album with some. There's a few new songs on that. We did it live in the studio. Um, that one that's called um, The Glee and the Spark. Um, so I was writing stuff. I've, I've just finished writing songs about canal life, but they're not on CD yet. And there's a song book now, 150 songs on it, all from from all the albums. You know, uh, looking back, um, 
it's an e-book at the moment because I can't afford to print anything. I'm not sure. But uh, so, yes, just uh, what, what have I been doing? Uh, well, yeah, writing, I suppose, and, and collaborating. I've, I've got uh, I've got a pia- hold of a piano from removal company when they had an old piano. So I started making tunes on that, got quite attached to it, and I've been doing so I've been quite dark they're quite dark very slow actually unlike me it's very different from what i've done um and i've been working together with friends my friend gavin plays fiddle and, and his partner ruth plays nickel harper it's like a cello and we've been doing voicings and dark harmonies on that and um that's that's lovely i, I i've enjoyed that i mean, that's quite a different project but uh, a different kind of direction i suppose but it's all music but i, I love it just because it's piano you know and it's very slow and it's un- melodies unfold and so it's not so much rhythmic stuff you know yes um so there's things like that i've been doing experimenting and um making songs for uh, as i say for other shows or dance pieces the kids album i did a song for a um, dance piece um, um, based around wind and breath and that, that's where the songs for big little people a lot of those songs are on there yeah and um, do you feel so that um you know because my own kids Sorry, I was going to say because obviously you know, you know, having sort of that sort of period in the eighties, which was all very angsty. And I know things weren't perfect the next few decades, but mm. now things have got even more kind of back to being very angsty again. Has mm. that sort of made you sort of reflect back on, you know, just how sort of changeable everything is in life, you know, and suddenly thinking, oh my God, this feels all a bit like it did back in that decade when we were all sort of on one side and the other and everybody was sort of mm. shouting at each other. I just wondered if you were starting to have a Proustian flashback over that, you know, those decades. Not so much. I mean, songs do come back, though, David. Actually, it's funny because they do come back and um, hit you in the face again when you do it because of war or whatever's happened or a love song. But in some ways, when, I, when I'm because I'm a live performer, so I've been doing these shows and, and for me it's like, I'm trying to find. I'm 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 trying to get as much light <laughs> out and good feeling as I can out there when I'm playing and t- telling stories and singing these songs to move people and take them on journeys. And it's really to do with the live, the, the album stuff. To me, it's just a record of something that I sang in the studio at that moment. But you know, and I'm glad people can go away with them and hear them and and their experiments. But it's the life. It's the mission of going out um, in a way trying to heal people trying to win people like reach out to people without alienating them and you know because we might not agree with everyone you know i mean there is dangerous there are dangerous times too i mean trump and fascism and uh, in hungary and, and all kinds of things going on which i, I def, definitely bring up and try and mention for our you know the xenophobia and things that separate us from people but i, I feel part, part of what i'm trying to do is to bring people together and realise the humanity. It's, I'm, it's a it's a it's a kind of battle in a way of wills, but I, I don't harp about so much. I'm just trying to move forward and and trying to carry on. Trying to uh, well, I don't, I, I don't like it's a bit pretentious, you know, because I don't I'm not a doctor, but I always think it should be on the national health, maybe music, you know, and laughter. But yes. it's such a healing thing, laughter. So when I'm singing sad songs and then I've got a happy one I'll do a happy one now or I'm one about death and then I'll do one about birth conception song um because it's the other side of life but it's that thing of realizing you can you know that you can laugh till you cry and you can cry till you laugh and 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 we need to you know we lock these feelings away and it's it's kind of sometimes realizing 
to survive we do lock them away but sometimes when they're touched and they brought those out it's quite healing as well you know yeah um so it's part of that you might go and see a movie and come out with tears in your eyes so i think taking people on this emotional journey for me a gig is is really important and it's all to do with that you know all the things that are going on in the world trying to talk about it but also show some positivity you know like i've got some, my song about the gun you know it, the, the, it, it, I, I have, a, have to talk about um the the fact that march the 13th this year was um was the uh, the anniversary of the Dunblane massacre you know and we had the christchurch shooting and the nra in america uh, you know uh, I, I think might be Trump's military wing of Trump's Republican Party, you know, and, and the guns. There's mothers and women who are victims of gun crimes and young kids suicide, you know. And so I, I'm thinking of all this, but the, the whole song is really about some the tools you do use and you don't need to use, you know. So it's 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 trying to push that positive thing, I suppose, you know, in a mission way, and sing about, you know, and have fun with it, and try and give people a good time and reach out to them you know without alienating people but i can't i can't not talk about racism or refugee experience but i'll sing about it you know i'll sing about it and in a, in a way because it's a story the storytelling is important so when you because it humanizes everything so when you hear a story of someone not just sloganeering songs which i i you know i've probably guilty of a few myself in the past but it, in the end uh you know, I, I, they're a bit boring, those protests. You know, it's the story song and trying to find something else to move people, you know, and take them on this journey, emotional journey, and, and dance as well and, you know, and feel good to be alive, you know, and, and whatever. And I know it sounds a bit hippie-like, but <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think it is. I think it's universal, really. Yes. You know, every, well, in the whole world, you know, whether it's same-sex marriage, you know, or kids now, you know, rebelling, I think, those things, the way we touch each other is so important. It's political as well, you know, and love each other and allow people to love each other in their own way, you know, you know, whether it's they're loving, it's a man loving a man or a woman, love, you know, I think it's, 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 that's, it's the essence of that is, is what it's that humanity, you know, and, and letting people, you know, in fact, they love each other, you know, let them be. <laughs> Religion's got a lot to answer for, I have to say. Yes. <laughs> you know, all the fundamentalist religions anyway, you know, which is dangerous, you know, that. So I sing about that too, of course. You know, uh, God loves me, but um, and uh, those kind of things. What would Jesus do? But it's it's really um, it's the fundamental. I mean, it's good religion. You know, it's good religion. You know, it's only bad. You know. <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. Because I can remember seeing you back back in God. And my memory might be completely wrong here. But did you used to do a lot of songs on God? I should know this more, shouldn't I? But did, you know, kind of um, singing about. Marketplaces, old markets oh, yeah. in London. Old like, Spitalfields, yeah. Spitalfields, yes. Yeah. No, so, Spitalfields, yeah. You, do Keep you memory to, alive. Yes. And, and so that. is that the title of the song? It's the Ballad of Spitalfields Markets on Lullabies for Big Babies, that one. Right. And, and London Kisses is on Mouth to Mouth, which is a double. And that's all, that's all around. It's just falling around London, but it's celebrating the diversity of London and, and, and love, you know, London itself, really. Yeah, Excellent. But, yeah. No, it's, it's keeping memory alive, David. I mean, I sing for my grandma still. You know, it's a dance song. I sing it very different from what's on the album. I, slow, I start slowly, I'm whistling, and and it's I just you know sing it. Much, I'm, she, I feel like she's behind me when I'm singing. You know, I get the shivers sometimes. But it's keeping memory alive, like the fruit market uh, and and refugee experience, and uh, uh, and celebrating that because you know these things aren't in history books, and so it's that that side of it. You know, singing singing. Um, 
you know, that, that, that narrative, you know, those different narratives that we don't often get, you don't hear on the telly or hear on the news. Well, absolutely. I don't have a telly. I don't have a telly to watch. So I'm, it's either radio or it's, um, you know, or DVDs. I, I go, when I'm touring, I might go and get secondhand videos and, and DVDs and, and, or buy a box set one year and it lasts all six months or a year, you know, to watch. <laughs> don't have normal telly, you know. No, that's, uh, yeah, no, telly seems a bit strange now. I mean, God, what was I going to say? Yes, yeah, because now you become you almost, you know, just because you managed to sort of keep surviving so long, mm. you know, an elder statesman. Do you sort of also start sort of picking, not picking up, but sort of bumping into other singer-songwriters or other musicians, you know, that you may back then not have spoke to, but now I think, God, actually, we've just been on the road. We've been doing this show. I just wondered if, mm. if you develop a bit of a more of a community with other yeah, people. Yeah, you do. There's always camaraderie. I love, you know, I love, that's why I love, I'd rather play in a band on my own. And yes, I mean, I'm every when I'm at festivals, I'm there with a the trombone. I'm crap, you know, I'm not great. I'm a trombone owner, but I'm there jamming with people and I love that. And it's, and it's not, we're not on the stage, everyone's equal. And then one can play, you know, we're playing tunes, but there might be a singer. But you're right. And, and there are older, you know, I mean, I don't know, we meet, there is, yes, there's respect. And, and I'm quite, I've, I've always been quite affectionate anyway. So I'm, I'll even kiss my brother, let alone, you know, and, and uh, so I'm like that with people. So, and and the more of our friends, you know, people passing away now, you know, our age and, and, and loved ones. So when you last too short, you know, for, for not being lovely to each other and, and giving them a warm, deep hug, because we need it, you know, and I love hugs. So, or whatever, and, and none of that, just, just, yeah, it's important. And not being competitive, you know, because I think some, I, I, I remember in the past people feeling intimidated a bit you know i might someone i was supporting someone and i did went down well better and i i, I didn't mean to but i just did what i was doing and, and they were upset by that and, and you, what can you do about that but but later on i don't know yeah you just you hope you don't want to be in competition with anyone you don't people will compare with someone else and you think no they're like that's they we're quite different we, we might sing with our accent like billy for example he's got great songs i love his levi stubbs tears and all that lovely soulful and and you know everyone's so different and got their own voices and i think it's definitely worth celebrating and i yeah. I, I, I don't want i don't think people try and separate or keep people apart and define pigeonholers and um that's that's always a bit that, that limits you a bit you know i think we're bigger you know we, we're trying to expand and get bigger than that yeah. <laughs> and not not be pigeonholed but you know so you're right yeah we do we we do um you know, look back and meet. I mean, I played at a rebellion fest, which was a punk festival, and I almost felt like I should wear because everyone's wearing black. You know, and at rebellion fest. I thought I should wear pink fluffy slippers for this. That would be rebellion. You know, just as a you know, just for fun. You know, and they probably all laugh at it. You know, yeah. Uh, so I mean, it's a little black and. Well, but I know absolutely. I, I wasn't dressing up. I'm just singing what I do, and it's funny because at punk, they, they they might rather be songs about divorce and love. You know, um, yeah, well, then. It's not normally a punk thing, is it? That kind of—I don't know what punk means. But if it, it depends how you define punk. I, I've, got, I've got to sing angry songs, but then I want to sing one about my mum, or I want to sing about a tender one, you know. So if that's not punk, then I'm not punk. If it is yes. punk, it is, you know. So I don't want to, you know. You got to break the rules, and if there are any rules, someone said the golden rules. There's no golden rules. I think it's George Bernard Shaw actually. So. So these festivals, you're trying to preach to the converted. Uh, I think, well, I'll just do something different because, you know, it's like, like playing, I used to play political things. I think I'll sing songs about divorce, and, you know, cause because uh, why preach to the converted and sing about what they all agree with already. So, you know, because I'm not saying all 
people beat their wives, but you know, the, the way you treat each other, you know, in a marriage or you know, patience and time. And so, so I might be awkward and want to sing something like that instead of a farewell welfare or something, you know. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I listened with. to um, Attila the Saltbrook, he did one about his either his dad or his mum with dementia dying. And that was kind of one of those ones you, you, it was, you know, it was really tearful hearing it. Mm. Um, I don't know if you heard it, but it is just absolutely mm. brilliant. But you, you know, yes, if you're going to still keep making music, you can't talk about things that you did when you were 18, when you're not 18, because yeah. it just sounds a bit naff. Because, <laughs> you know, because yeah, exactly. we've all had experiences that you think, oh, that's kind of going to change a lot yeah. of things, you know, so it just isn't, it is impossible. And you don't yeah. really want to, because it's a bit tragic if you're sort of trying to capture the, the youth market you think well yeah there's already young people doing that <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it would be i mean the tragic it's yeah i mean i think this, it's just trying to be yourself really on and off stage just being you know not just trying to be happy and interested I'm, I'm interested you know I love, I love meeting people anyway so it's just trying being interested in everyone and, and everything and um you're never bored anyway then <laughs> no <laughs> you know just, and just lastly what would you say to your kind of 18 year old self when I say that I mean mm. just kind of what if you kind of thought wow that's something that I've really picked up by being on this earth having these experiences over the decades you know that so it isn't mm. kind of sometimes people ask me do you mean my 18 year old self then or now or an 18 year old now and it's like well just something that you you think god that's that's kind of wisdom I've learned <laughs> yeah well I think yeah I mean when you have kids that changes everything I mean as well but um that's not the only thing but I think you know going I suppose you know we survive relationships you know we survive heartache heartbreak everyone does you know and and you don't think you can when you're 18 if it's the first love you might even want to slip you know slit your wrist or you know what I mean (laughs) self-harm and and because you're so young and it's your first love and you just that's it you've given everything to someone and they've let you down and you think god well if I if that was the closest person to me and they let me down that world's the world's a fucked up place you know you know what yeah. i mean so because you're going to be depressed and, and pessimistic so you'd want to say you sort of, we survive these things you know and learn and hopefully not get too hard hardened hard skinned and still be out of love but with a bit more depth and understanding and more patience or and learn from our mistakes <laughs> i don't know <laughs> uh i've got a song called the right mistake it was the you know that mistake i made was the right thing to do because i wouldn't have met, met you you know but it's it's looking at mistakes as, as a positive thing too, you know. <laughs> yes, maybe. Well, I think, I think it's just it's when it's when you sort of keep re- repeating the same patterns that you think I'm not really yeah. learning, but you keep getting presented yeah. with a situation, and it's easy at first thinking it's other people, and then you think actually I keep meeting this, perhaps it's kind of my approach <laughs> or the, what I'm yeah. doing that's created and these. Oh, I'm attracting this kind of thing, and I keep mm. reliving it, and perhaps without sounding too cosmic but you know it's like yeah. almost like god saying come on i'll give you another one see if you can get this one right another <laughs> say another person or another friendship yeah. and you repeat yeah. it and you think oh those they were so irritating and then you realize <laughs> actually perhaps it's just the way i'm doing it and i just need to yeah. change that slightly perhaps i'm being a bit needy or i'm demanding too much out of this kind of relationship and actually mm. if i change that approach then i won't have that same pattern that keeps happening and then you yeah. get, and then you sort of wake up and think, I've got it, I've done it, I've sorted that one. Yeah. And then you don't, and that doesn't happen again. And I think that's a huge relief because you think, 
actually, I did get it. without them beating yourself up that you got it wrong in the yeah. past. You know, I think that's, yeah. that's the key because you, like you said, you don't want to become hardened in a way that makes you kind of bitter because a bitter person is just like, mm, well, then you think any any you're never going to have experience love again because you think it's inevitable. Yes. If, if you believe it's inevitable that it's going to break up, you won't want to start a relationship. You know, but I think also maybe um, listening, learning to listen. Um, with you know, apart from yourself, but listening to your partner or or listen to other people. I mean, and that's the secret of music. That's the secret of jamming with people really, is listening, not trying to be louder than anyone else or faster than anyone else or cleverer technically, or you know the ego thing. But actually, you're listening. If, it depends because I mean, jamming. You might listen. It's the song in the end. If you're jamming with someone and they're singing, you go with the song. You know, you're listening to that. So that song is made. It just strengthening that song, not diluting it or covering it up and trying to, you know, with 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 a load of notes or cleverness, you know, but really soulful, you know, and, and same, I think it's for like dialogue, you know, having a dialogue with someone, you don't want to dialogue with someone who doesn't listen. So, and I think that, you know, obviously as a musician, that's definitely a lesson to learn, but also in life, <laughs> listening, you know, <laughs> and maybe listening to yourself, like as you say, yeah, because you can re-dramatise or, re, you know, uh, reenact or, you know, whatever might be going on had happened before yeah yeah relationships this is very look rory this has been great mm. so i think i've got quite a bit there now so that's mm. fantastic so thank you ever so much for your time i'm glad that you're um because you're playing some live dates at the moment as well aren't you sort of i've got a few left i've got yeah i'm in birmingham nottingham and then where is it next after that oh somewhere in derbyshire yeah but it's been great i mean last night was lovely yeah they've all been lovely actually i have to say i'm really enjoying it you, I know you were in Norwich a few years ago as well, weren't you? Yeah, that's right, the bicycle shed, wasn't it? Or bicycle, is it was called, the bicycle shed? And premises? And then Open, I think you were in Open as well. I think you've been, I don't know. It, there, was an, mm. there was quite a few you've been yeah. in Norwich in the last I was few. with Michelle Shocked that years ago as well, um, playing somewhere in the, at the university, I think it was. That was probably years, the, yeah. there was 80s. the UEA, because I saw it. Yeah, when she had done an album called, she did sharp, short, sharp, shock, which was yeah. brilliant, and then Captain she did Swing, that. Was it? Yeah, but then she did that very first album, which was the Campfire one, wasn't it? Where she did. Uh, yeah, like, that was the very first one. Yeah, five o'clock in Amsterdam or something, and yeah, then I saw her on the, Limbo, yeah. and then I saw her on um, Captain Swing and. I was saying, oh, actually, I'm not quite so keen on this album as mm. I was the last one, but it was all mm. right. It was just not, you know, I just yeah. loved Short Sharp Shock so much. It was kind of yeah. one of those albums, wasn't it, that got mm. heavy rotation and play. I mean, there was a sort of golden period, wasn't there? There was like mm. a bit of Susan Vega, Tracy Chapman and uh, Michelle Shocked and then, you know, a few other mm. artists, a bit like uh, Mary Margaret O'Hara, I think. Um, Only DeFranco, maybe, yeah, later. Oh, yes, Annie DeFranco, Christ. Um, I yes. on one of her albums as well. Did you? <laughs> Years ago. Met her in Canada, yeah. Yeah, she was amazing, or still is. But, yes, mm. there was a kind of a great m movement, really. I did sort of enjoy a lot of that stuff. It's, um, yeah. yeah, kind of magical. And then, you know, yes, like you said, you you know, you, you were there with the Poison Girls at times. So, um, yeah. yes, that yeah. was another one of those bands and albums that I suppose a lot of people, you know, got that and then they got into the levelers and you know that was kind mm. of dr ditch <laughs> yeah i suppose yeah i don't know because some of the levels used to come and hear me play i did and they i didn't know that at the time because i didn't know that you know i didn't well they was, probably weren't the levelers yet but they told me because I, I they were asking me to do we did a talk you know asking me to support do a talk sort of support with alabama three actually some years ago now it's 20 years ago um 
but yeah, they, that's true. They came out. Doctor Jiz, I don't know really, but no. I'm guessing it's done with a didgeridoo. But it was there was a there was a period when there was a lot of didgeridoos happening. Yeah, right, like djembe drummers. Yeah, djembe. <laughs> yeah, oh, they was. <laughs> They they don't listen to other people, do they? They just drum. well, you know what? I, it's funny because I was at Tribe of Doris is a is a drumming convention. I, I've been I've gone to. I take my kids somewhere. It is lots. Of, it's workshops. It's really to do with people learning stuff. And there's people from everywhere. African drumming. There's uh, Kodo drummers. There's all kind. It's great actually. But yeah, around the fire, until five in the morning, I was singing and playing and, or jamming. I had the trombone. But yeah, getting people to listen. And, and, and last time we did get them to listen. I said no. Hold on, listen, and then yeah, and they've got them lighter because yeah, getting them to listen because they all want to be heard, you know. Yeah. They all playing together and getting rhythms going, and it was and then even another older older guy came in and started conducting, you know, to get them to listen. <laughs> but yeah, but it, it's great in one way. But yeah, yes, yes, I love. I mean, I love drums, but yes, it's quite fun. <laughs> yes. yes, I know. <laughs> I mean, you get Charlie Watts, don't you? That kind of nice, yeah. you know, and that sort of lightness mm. of touch, and then you get kind of motorhead don't you and then you think well that's quite loud very different yeah (laughs) Levon Helm is it Levon Helm who was the drummer with the band I don't know there's all different kinds of drummers aren't there lovely drummers yeah lovely drummers (laughs) 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 well there are great you know that yeah listen I love is it Ry Cooder's drummer Jim Keltner or uh, maybe it's to do with the arrangements as well what you get not to play (laughs) well I suppose it's quite interesting because I spoke to a few drummers lately and and asked them about John Bonham and they just love that kind of almost simplicity but that depth of sound because it wasn't Mm. You know, there was some, there was an essence to his drumming, which wasn't mm. kind of fiddly and like, blimey, that's yeah. just, you know, doing incredibly, Primal. you know, pyrotechnic yeah. kind of drums. Like, you know, people got into those kind of guitar solos. Gene Krupa, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, exactly, but it was, yeah. it was just like this kind of... Primal. Group, yeah, primal, that's the word. Yeah. But, it, you know, like, wow, that's quite, a, that's quite dense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so that's good anyway look rory thank you ever so much yeah. i'll keep in touch and i'll send you a link yeah. um okay. so you can always use it on your facebook page well, let us know if you want any more you know i don't know spell check or or you know send us is it this is this going on radio is it yes that's know. right okay so, oh okay so you don't need to worry about that no i don't that's good okay okay any other well, questions let us know <laughs> i will okay well thanks ever so much it's all good this <laughs> okay dave Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Look, send us a link. I'll have a listen. That'd be lovely. Okay. Lots of love to you. Lots Take of care, love. mate. Bye bye. Love to Norwich. Bye, mate. Bye. bye.